We are in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Let us read together, starting in verse 12. It says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Lord, as we approach your word this evening, we do pray, Lord, that you would meet us in a very special way. We prepared our hearts in the time of worship. And now, Lord, we're seeking you. We want to know you. We don't want to know about ourselves. We don't need to know about ourselves. But we want to know the creator of the universe, what you're like, what your desire is for us to, to accomplish, that your will could be done on earth as it is in heaven. So be with us as we study and speak to us, Lord, in this time that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Last time we got together, we were told to put off the old man, which means that we need to recognize two things. The first thing that we need to recognize in putting off this old life, this old way of living, these old habits, is that the reason why we can turn away from sin and a life of wrongdoing is because the Lord will satisfy the longings of our heart. We know that anything the world has to offer you, whether it's fame, whether it's pleasure, money, uh, success, any of those things that the world has to offer you is a shadow. It's not the real thing. And because the Lord really does satisfy those deepest longings of our heart, we can turn away from those things. And the second thing we learned is that the Lord will bring justice to those who are mistreated. So a lot of times the reason why we sin we're angry, we gossip. The reason why we're covetous is because we feel like the Lord hasn't come through for us. And because of that, we need to take matters into our own hands. But when you can commit your ways to the Lord, knowing that the Lord will take vengeance for you, when he's the one who's the great equalizer, you don't feel the need to take that upon yourself. So those old ways of living is a life without God, a life of not knowing if things are going to work out for good. Not knowing if things are going to be made right in the end. And you have to fight for yourself. But if the Lord is for you, then he's the one who fights for you. And tonight, as we learned that there are things that we're supposed to put off, like an old t-shirt, there are also things like a new t-shirt we're supposed to put on. These new attributes, this new life. And so he says, you are the elect of God. You're chosen, in other words. Holy, set apart, and you're loved you're chosen, you are set apart by God, and you are loved by God. Knowing that, you can put on these new attributes. Now, it's springtime. What usually happens is, happens every single year that I've been doing high school ministry. Springtime, especially the seniors, they start thinking things like, well, I've been in youth ministry all my life. 
do I really have to go anymore? Do I really, like, maybe I'm above this God thing. Maybe I'm above the, at least the youth group thing. And I'm going to use Friday nights to do something more productive with my time, like hanging out at, I don't know, Wendy's. Something. Something really exciting. And here's what I would say. I think if we're honest, a lot of times the reason why people will leave youth group or church in general and not want to come back is because they think that Christianity is all about the things that you're supposed to do. So because of that, you come to church, and maybe you, you do have a, a good, genuine desire to seek the Lord, but the reason why you stop coming isn't because you want to hang out with your friends at Wendy's. It's because every time you come, you're reminded of all the ways that you were a failure. I mean, how many of us are currently discouraged because you're behind on the Bible challenge? Right? We had a whole bunch of seniors over at Kenny's house uh, this past Sunday. It was a great time of fellowship, but we just kind of were honest in a circle. and We're like, all right, how many of you are behind? And most of us were. We weren't keeping with the reading schedule. And there's a part of us that's like, oh, well, we have to keep up. And, and so because of that, you're like, you want to, at the end of the year, be able to say that you read through the Bible in, in the entire year. So you're kind of just saving up a day where you can read like 20 chapters in a day. When the best thing to do is just pick up with, with everybody else and not worry about saying whether or not you finish at the end of the year. So because of that, you just feel like you're constantly a failure. You're trying to measure up and you can't. And you look at this list of things that we're supposed to do. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forgive, put on peace, put on love, all these things. And you're like, oh, another list of things to do. And so is Christianity about being a good person? Because if it is, then all of us are going to be discouraged because we're all bad people. And we're realizing that even though we are Christians, sometimes it doesn't make us a better person than those people in the world. And you see people in the world, and sometimes those people, they're more virtuous people than the people in the church. So people outside of the church become disappointed because it seems like Christians don't practice what they preach. Why, would, why do I want to be a, become a Christian if that makes me like those people that are inside the church, people that are hypocrites? When we realize that the central message of the Bible is not that you must become a better person, it's that Jesus was the perfect person. He was the person that you could never be, and that gives us hope, actually. It's the most encouraging message when we realize that we are the problem because every other religion doesn't want to admit that that you're the problem. It's everybody else that's the problem. But when we as Christians look at the Bible and we admit saying there is none good, no, not one, that's what the Bible says. Then you have a foundation, you have a starting point from which to look for somebody to save you. It's the realization that you're not a good person that keeps us here. Not trusting in our works, trusting in the fact that we go to church, we read the Bible, we did the plan or whatever. But then why are there these lists of things that we're supposed to do? Well, if we recognize that we are sinners saved by grace, not of works, lest anyone should boast, if we know that to be true, then why does Paul bother writing all these things to the Colossian people and say, like, and really, you should be doing this? If we know we can't, right? Because that's honestly how we feel sometimes is we look at the passage like this and we think, well, I'm never going to be kind. I'm never going to be forgiving to that person at least. I'm not going to be a person who's meek. Everyone believes that they're humble. They don't have a problem with that one. Yeah, I'm humble. I can work on that any day, any day of the week. 
But most of us look at this list and think, well, if, there, if we're not going to be able to actually keep these, then what's the point in even looking at it and even trying? Well, I think there's two reasons. Number one, the reason why there's lists like this in the Bible is because, number one, good works are good evidence that God has touched your heart. Good, work, good works are good evidence that God has touched your heart. And secondly, because although moral perfection is impossible in this life, moral progress is. So firstly, that good works are good evidence that God has touched your heart. If you were driving, how many of you have a license, by the way? Okay, good. This illustration applies to you, most of you. But let's pretend, those of you that can't drive, let's say that as you're driving, you get a flat tire. Maybe you have a blowout, and you're just like, here at thud and whatever. You get out of the car, you're like, oh, no. It's miserable because, like, you're, all your day's plans are ruined. You can't drive on a flat tire because it'll ruin the rim, and that'll be a lot of money to fix. So if you fix the tire, a couple hundred dollars, fix the rim, maybe even up to $1,000 sometimes, depending on what kind of rim you have. So knowing that ruins your day, you go to the mechanic. How do you know if the mechanic touched your car? If after he's done, you look at the car, look at the wheel, and it has air inside of it, right? That's how you know that the tire is fixed. There's pretty good evidence that if the tire can hold air, that the tire is done. The mechanic looked at it. He did something with it. In the same way that if you are exemplifying works, good deeds, that is good evidence that God has fixed your heart in some way. It may not be perfect. It may not, you might not be a, a sinless person, but God himself, if he has claimed to give you this new life that we've been talking about, that he's touched your heart, then you will start to exemplify good, good deeds. And so the evidence is oftentimes for us in James chapter 2, verse 26, it says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. It's evidence that God has, has begun a good work in you when you start to do good things. We don't want to do bad things anymore. You hate the fact that you keep on doing bad things. That's a good sign that you have God's Holy Spirit inside of you. Because James, the author of uh, James, writes about this illustration saying, that a dead body is dead because it doesn't have a soul. It doesn't have a spirit anymore. Just like if you say that you believe in God, but you're not exemplifying any works to back that up, it's like a dead body without that soul. And so for us as believers, one of the ways that you know that God is working in you is when you start to, may not be perfect, but you start showing something. It's also good evidence for the world. John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus said, By this... All will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. People should come into church and know that God really exists and really has touched your heart because people love each other when they shouldn't. People forgive each other when they shouldn't. The second thing we talked about just now is moral progress. That although moral perfection isn't possible in this life, moral progress is because, you see, it would be cruel if God asked us to do things we are not capable of doing. It'd be kind of like looking at a baby, like a cute little toddler, I don't know, three years old, and you have a 100-pound dumbbell right in front of him. And you're like, lift it, baby. And he's like, 
Well, he can't really do anything, right? He just cries, I guess. I guess maybe at three years old, I'm not an expert on this. I'm not an expert on parenting. I'm working on it. But I think babies might be able to talk at three years old. Yes, they definitely can. I'm remembering now. Children's ministry. Good. So he'll probably, like, say you're, you're a monster, you're terrible, he might call you names, but he won't be able to do anything. And you would be a cruel person if you asked that baby to try to lift 100 pounds. Also, if we go back to that example of a person with a flat tire, wouldn't it be cruel if you were on your way to work, you got a flat, you had to go get it fixed, you come into work, and then your employer says, well, you should have known that your tire was going to be flat. It's like, yeah, I, there was... Like, what do you want me to do? It was impossible for me to get to work. And if your employer fired you because you were late, if you have a history of being late, that's one thing. But if he fired you for being late because of circumstances you could not prevent, that would be a cruel thing. And if God asked us to do things that he was not giving us the power to do, it would also be cruel of God. But in 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, it says, By God's divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. You and I have the power. By his power working in us, it allows us to do the things that God asks us to do. People in this world will always debate about what's right and what's wrong. They'll say, well, is it really wrong to do that when it comes to ethics? Or what Christians say is wrong in the Bible or say is a sin? Is that really right or is that wrong? And they'll base it depending on what they see as evidence perhaps the results of something, to look at the consequences of certain actions and say, well, that certain type of government is right, that certain type of government is wrong, that action is right, that action is wrong. But Christians have a further way of knowing whether things are right and wrong. Not by examining, examining it in your textbook, not by examining it in a debate, but by simply listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, they can be guided into all truth. And so Christians have this unique way of approaching righteous living. Whereas students of Gandhi or Buddha would look for how to live a good life. People would always be asking this question, how do I live a virtuous life? Christians can just be guided by God's Holy Spirit because we have access to Jesus and we have his example. Since Jesus was a perfect person who walked this earth and never sinned, we can literally look at his life for every situation and say, how would Jesus act? Or the old acronym, what would Jesus do in this situation? And then as Christians, we can follow him. And not only what would Jesus do, but because you share his life, you can also know what he wills because his uh, Holy Spirit is speaking to you on a daily basis. Now, my question is, if we are Christ followers, that's what it means to be a Christian, we say that we want to follow in his ways, and we have a desire to turn from this life of sin, that's why we accepted him as Lord and, Lord and Savior, and we have the ability to walk as he walked, then why would we wait till we die to be more like him? So if you've professed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've said, Lord, I don't want to be a sinner anymore, and you have the ability to sin less, why would you wait until the day that you die to be transformed into the image of his son when you can continually become more like him each and every day? 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 says, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. So as Christians, you and I, we're to be agents of change, 
to go around and tell people that are weary, people that are burdened, and say, hey, listen, there's a better life available to you. There's a good life that you don't have access to. But if you would just listen to the teachings of Jesus and you would meet with him, you would have access to God himself. And you would be able to know what that life is like. So, now that we know that it's possible that God isn't asking us things that we're not capable of doing, and that we're gradually going to be more and more like him, let's see, it. Let's see some of these things that we're supposed to do. So the first thing is, uh, it says, Therefore, elect of God, holy and beloved, verse 12, put on tender mercies and kindness. Tender mercies and kindness. It might be better translated compassion, and I'll give you actually the literal Greek in a second. But in Luke chapter 10, I think Jesus illustrates for us in the parable of the Good Samaritan, what tender mercies or what compassion really looks like. Because we might look at this attribute and, and ask ourselves, how do we model that in our lives? Well, in the Good Samaritan, remember, the whole thing came about, that story, because there's a lawyer who is seeking to justify himself, who said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, well, what, do you, what does the law say? He says, well, blah, blah, blah. It says, love the Lord your God and, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yeah, do that and you're, you're going to live. You'll be fine. And then he says, well, then who is my neighbor? Because he wanted to make sure, like, he basically wanted to look at the, the rules and say, like, I basically got all this good. I'm a good person. He wanted to justify himself. And Jesus tells a story about there's a priest and a Levite that saw this man who was left half dead on the side of the road. The priest looks at him, goes to the other side. Levite! goes to the other side. These people that were religious leaders, that people would have expected to do good, to stop what they're doing, but maybe they thought they were too busy. Maybe they had more important things to do, or maybe because they're like, you know what? I don't know. He just kind of looks like he's dying anyway, and just, I, what, what can I really do anyway? They just left. But a Samaritan, a person who was a natural enemy of this Jewish man, because they had fights in those days, and they had all these different, um, different divisions, this Samaritan steps down, and though he had no obligation to, he had, the Bible says, compassion, the same word on the man. And then he bound his wounds, put him on his own donkey, he walked to an inn, pay for that person's stay. That's what Jesus says is the way that we're supposed to have compassion, as this good Samaritan did. Now, when it uses that word compassion as it does here, it's the same word, and it's kind of awkward it literally means bowels of compassion. To be moved as to one's bowels, hence to be moved with compassion. I don't know why I laughed. I'm 28 years old. Have compassion. The reason why, I mean, this, this takes some explanation. So we would say in our culture that if we love someone, we feel it in our heart, right? But they would actually say you feel it in your bowels. The reason being, we, we still kind of talk like this when we say we have a gut feeling, right? Because when you feel the butterflies in your stomach, that emotion, they believe that the, the seat of your thoughts, your will, uh, was to be right here in your bowels. So bowels of compassion. So <laughs> kind of awkward, but what he's saying here is really, really significant, and that's the reason why I'm saying it tonight. What he's saying here is that he had emotional feelings when he saw the person who was wounded on the side of the road. Now, interesting. Can you put on emotions? 
I mean, it's kind of hard, right? Sometimes people are crying in front of you, and like, if they really annoy you, it's really hard to sympathize with that person and to empathize with that person. You look at them and you're just like, stop your crying. Stop your whining. Just stop. I don't know what you're doing. Your parents probably do it all the time when you're being annoying, right? It's like, stop your crying. I'll talk to you when you're done. You're like, ah, you're just like, everything's ruined because like your mom used your lipstick or whatever. I don't know. Guys, if that happened to you, it's weird. <laughs> but so how do you put on emotions? How do you put on compassion? Because it seems here that compassion is, is an event, something that happens to a person. Well, here's the key. Each and every one of us has a sphere of influence, right? Whether it's school, whether it's a coffee shop, home, or at work, each and every one of us has people that we're constantly dealing with. And do you, on a regular basis, have times where you have your heart go out to people that are hurting? Perhaps that happens to you. But God doesn't want that to happen to just some people. Not just when you go to the Dominican Republic. Some of you will in a couple weeks. Not just people in a third world country. He wants you to have compassion on the worst sinner on the earth. The person that offends you. Because the whole point of that parable of the Good Samaritan was that Jesus is saying, you're asking, who is my neighbor? When you should be asking, how can I be a neighbor? We're to be neighborly. As Christians, we're to have compassion on all people that don't know Jesus. To be Jesus to all those people. And then you would ask the question, but what if I don't have that kind of compassion? What if I don't have those feelings? It just doesn't happen when I think of those people, especially the people that I don't like, the people that are my natural enemies. Especially when you think about, like, Paul's talking about putting on these attributes like it's clothing, like it's that simple. Like, put off the old man, like an old dirty t-shirt, and put on the new man. Cool. Done deal. How do we do that? Well, here's the thing. Pay attention. You won't gain that kind of heart through your effort. God has to put it in you. That's the key. That if you don't have that kind of compassion, you have to allow God to do it inside of you. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. As the psalmist says in Psalm 51, create in me a, a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Our prayer is, is to ask God to give us the heart that he has for people. Where Jesus on the cross could say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That he could go, have compassion on the multitudes. That same word, to have those emotions welling up inside of him naturally because God's heart is inside of him and inside of you. The next thing we see is humility. Humility or meekness. Those are the next attributes that we are to put on as believers. Now, in our CCS class, those of you that go to Calvary Christian School, I talked about this because we just went over Judges chapter 8. I think it's an important principle because you have that hero Gideon who fought the battle against the Midianites. And as he did, he was able to drive them out, and he was the guy who was the weakest of the weak. God chose him and says, I'm choosing you, mighty man of valor. And he's like, I have no idea where you're like me? You're talking to me. He says, yeah. And so Gideon takes it upon himself to go after he's like not confident at all, ask for a sign. God gives him a sign. But tragically, he starts to attribute the victory to his own strength. 
Even though God whittled down the army to 300 people, Gideon still started to believe that this was his battle. He took things personally. And so, in thinking about humility, you know the Bible never says to pray for humility. It says to humble yourself before the Lord. The Bible expects humility to be something that you do. That you take steps yourself to humble yourself before God. That you approach God and you're not all that. You don't think that you're all that. Well, how do you do that? How do you have the lowliness that Jesus had? That he came as a bondservant. That he came not to be served, but to serve. Well, one of the examples that we used at Calvary Christian School, I'll use the same one because DJ's here, luckily. Um, how many of you go to CCS, by the way? I just want to know how many people I'm repeating this to. Oh, great. So the majority of you guys are going to hear this for the first time. So how do you make sure that success doesn't go to your head? That seems hard, right? Like when we say, let's do something to the glory of God. What does that actually mean? When you're playing a sport and you're saying like, all right, we're going to do this soccer tournament to the glory of God. What does that mean? Does that mean at the end of the soccer game when you get the trophy, you like bring it up in the air like, yeah, this one's for Jesus. You pull a chance to the rapper and after, you know, the Grammys, you just kind of say something about God. Is that how you give glory to God? Is that how you humble yourself? Or is there something more to it? Well, what we discovered is this. Let's say that you are doing a school project. Everybody knows when you're doing a school project, the reality is one person does all the work and the rest of the people just watch and wait till it's done and then they all turn it in and the teacher has no idea that this happens. They're just like, wow, you all did a great job and, and like brags about you in front of the class and says, what a team effort it was. You all should be like them and and you're like, haha, that's funny. But like, really, that one person's like, get out of my way. I will do everything. Don't interfere. I'll tell you when I'm done. Right? That's the reality. Now, in that group project, I'll just use DJ again because he's here. Let's say that DJ was the one who did all the work himself. Like, literally, he did all the work. How do you keep yourself from believing that the success of the group was due to your own effort? How do you keep yourself from believing that? your A, like, makes you an A student. Well, there's a number of ways, right? You could go up to DJ and you can actually thank him. Hey, thanks, man. Thanks for doing all the work for me because I literally did nothing, right? You could actually seek to repay him. Maybe go up to him and say, like, hey, man, I, like, I can't repay you for the grade, literally, but we can go out to dinner unless you're, you know, a female, unless you're interested, you know what I'm saying? But you can seek to repay him in different ways. It doesn't have to be dinner. It could be, I don't know, a baseball game or something, whatever DJ wants to do. So there's a number of different ways to do it. When we give glory to the Lord, we have to start by saying thank you. Lord, this is not my success. And the problem is we usually do. When we win the game, it's because I worked hard, because I practiced, because I'm talented. But God gives you literally everything. And when you recognize that God has given you everything that you have, including your talents, abilities, and intellect. Now, suddenly, you have nothing to boast about, but you can boast in the Lord. And that's the whole point, is that you can brag about the Lord because he's the one who enables you to do everything. This is why the Bible, if you've been doing the Bible challenge, reminds us in Deuteronomy, God warns them and says, listen, I know what's going to happen. There will come a day that you're in the promised land, your stomach will be full you're going to be in prosperity, and you're going to forget the Lord your God. That's why you need to remember his commands. You need to remember what I've told you. Remember his works. 
And for us, sometimes we don't know how to deal with prosperity. We have no idea how to do, deal with success. It's easier to seek God when things are going wrong in your life, really hard to seek God when things are going right. But that's the time that we perhaps even need God the most. You know, the world tells you to believe in yourself. The world tells you to trust in your own efforts. Like, if you put your mind to it, you can do anything you set your mind to. I love what G.K. Chesterton said. He's an author. He said, the men who really believe in themselves are all in lunatic asylums. It's true. <laughs> the people that, like, really trust in themselves, they're, like, deluded, and we lock them up, and we don't see them anymore. But a Christian should be a person who's humble, who doesn't need recognition, doesn't need success, doesn't need fame, because they are all about the Lord and his name being lifted up. So the next thing we see is long-suffering and forgiveness. Long-suffering and forgiveness. We see that in verse 13. It says, Bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Forgiveness is the one attribute, one, one attribute that Christians should show the most, but oftentimes it doesn't seem like that at all. I think oftentimes it's, it seems like it's the very reason why people don't go to church, because people are hypocritical. But if you're honest and you're sitting here today, you know that if you've been hurt before, you're not really sure what to do. How are you really supposed to respond and show forgiveness to people that continually hurt you? Should you stay away from that person and say, you know what, I, I just, like, this person always gossips about me. Anytime I'm around them, they, I only get angry. It's best to kind of just keep my distance. Or do you allow them to have that close proximity and therefore continue to fail you, share your secrets, talk bad about you? What do you do? As Christians, it seems like a predicament, right? We don't really know what to do and how to show that forgiveness that God asks us to show. Well, let me make it more difficult for you. I'm about to like, what you thought was forgiveness, I'm about to shatter your, your idea of what forgiveness is, and I'm going to tell you what Jesus said. Peter goes up to Jesus and says, hey, so what do you think? Like, there's a person that continually will hurt me. So this is what I thought. If I forgive them seven times, that should be enough, right? And after that, I'm not going to talk to them anymore. Because you need to protect yourself, guard your heart, all that stuff. What do you think? And Jesus says, what? You all know it. Not just seven times, 70 times seven. And Peter, like, I almost see, like, Jesus saying it like, like, Peter, 70 times seven. He's just like, what? What do you mean seven? He's just, like, doing his math, you know, times tables. That's a lot of times. And the whole point is, and Jesus goes into that parable, right? That if God forgave you, why would you, owe, why would you hold anyone to any debt that they owe you? See, forgiveness is not a suggestion for the Christian. It's actually a command from God. That's why it says, as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But why must we forgive? Why is it a requirement for the Christian? Why is it a command? Well, it's because God forgave us of our sins. Pastor Alistair Begg said this, Anytime I harbor animosity towards anyone, it is because I have diminished my sense of the debt I owe to the living God. Because anytime that you hold a grudge against somebody else or you, you refuse to forgive people, you forget that you've infin infinitely more 
have disobeyed and hurt the Lord. You've sinned against him first. So when we look at forgiveness, what does that actually mean? What does that actually look like? Because there has to be some kind of limitations, right? It can't just literally mean that you forget, like you pretend it didn't happen and you just move on. But if you look at the Bible, remember when David had his son Absalom and Absalom completely overthrew the entire army and he wanted to usurp the throne from David, but David, through a series of events, uh, was, was consulting with some of his uh, leadership and Absalom wanted to come back in the kingdom after there's all this heartbreak, all this terrible stuff going on. And this is what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 14. The king gave this order, Absalom may go to his own house, but he must never come into my presence. And Absalom did not see the king. Actually, what happened, this is actually before. Before Absalom went crazy, this is what happened. I got my facts messed up. Absalom had avenged the death of his sister. And because he had avenged death, David was so hurt that his family was having this infighting. And so he says, Absalom, I'll forgive you. I just don't want to see you anymore. And because of that, that's what led to Absalom overthrowing, seeking to overthrow, overthrow David's throne. And I remember having a conversation with a, a student that graduated a number of years ago because he was being hurt, teased by some of the people in youth group. And what he told me was, He's like, Alan, you know what? These, what they were saying to me was just so mean and so nasty. I'll forgive them, but I'm just, I'm not going to be friends with them anymore. And what I said to him was this. What if Jesus said to you, hey, man, like, I forgive you all your sins, but, like, I just don't think we can be friends anymore. Do you think that's really the forgiveness that Jesus has shown you? Or is it an intimate kind of forgiveness? Because, you see, Jesus when he forgives us of all of our sins, doesn't just say, I'm going to forget about it. He actually absorbs the pain upon himself. It's like Joseph and his brothers. His brothers did not believe that they had been forgiven of their sin when they betrayed their brother Joseph. But Joseph went over to them, wept among them, and told them that he had forgiven them. Forgiveness doesn't just wipe the slate clean because someone is always absorbing the offense. I remember when I lost working at the gas station, I, I lost $300. I don't know what happened to it. It was just like, it was like the only time I ever lost money, but I was having like allergic reaction or something. I had to go home early, put the envelope, not in the safe. I put it like somewhere else in cash register. It just disappeared. And so like after that happened, I was like, oh man, I was freaking out. And I told my boss, I was like, you can take it out of my pay. It'll be fine. And he said, oh, don't worry about it. Said, what do you mean? Don't worry about it. Said, yeah, just, it's fine. It's whatever it happens. It happens. $300 is a lot of money, especially when you're like 19. But you see, what he was saying was not, yeah, the money will just magically reappear. I'm just going to pretend it didn't happen. What he was saying is, I will take the offense upon myself. I will absorb the debt myself so that you don't have to. And so when we forgive others, what we do is we absorb the debt upon ourselves because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. You know, people often ask, is the good news really that simple? Is it really just if I just live a terrible life and at the end I just pray for, pray for forgiveness, Jesus will forgive me of all my sins. That's all I have to do. Some people don't want to say yes. They don't say, well, if they're, if they're genuine, yeah, I don't know. That is the good news. 
that Jesus says it does not matter how sinful you are, how far you are from God. If you repent of your ways, if you would ask for that forgiveness, Christ will wipe your debt clean. And this is what Jesus does for us. So forgiveness means that we absorb the offense knowing that Jesus absorbed the offenses for our sake. If you think about forgiveness, I think a lot of times people don't want to forgive, not realizing that they're the ones that are in pain. Corrie ten Boom, who was a World War II Holocaust survivor, she said to forgive is to set a prisoner free, and the prisoner is you. And this is a person who was able to forgive the people that had sent her to concentration camps. And for us, what is the debt? What is the debt that we're holding onto that someone else has offended, uh, has offended us? Maybe it's time to reconsider that and to forgive. He also talks about love. Colossians chapter 3, verse 14 says, Above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Going to go a little bit faster now. See, the Bible says that love brings us together as a community. He says, above all these things, you can put on compassion, important, that you feel things. You see a person who's hurting and you want to go help. You put on kindness. You put on humility, that you humble yourself to serve others. Meekness, long-suffering. You're willing to bear with people that hurt you constantly over and over again. You're willing to forgive them. Above all these things, he says, though, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So why did he say this? Why did he say that you are to love one another? It's by your love for one another that people know your disciples. It's because it's not easy. It doesn't come naturally. We want to look out for number one and not look out for the people around us. But it uses this word bond, and that word bond there means like ligaments. It means like tendons, which if you know what tendons are, they hold radically different body parts together. Your foot is very different than your leg. It's like a very different composition. It has different function. But it's the ligaments that are deeply rooted that hold the whole thing together. And this is what love does. It holds us together. And that should be the unique love of Christ's function in our lives. It may be hard, but this is exactly what God commands us to do, that you would love and you show that love to people that often would hurt you. Then he also says, peace. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. Now, some people use this to talk about decision-making, and that's not really the sense here. The sense here is not to say, like, before you make a decision, make sure you have the peace of God in your heart. That's a different application for a different time. What it's really talking about here is, as you gather together as a fellowship, you should have the number one thing be among you as peace. Not constantly fighting, not constantly having these arguments, but have peace rule your lives. And that peace comes from knowing that God is sovereign and that he's in control. John chapter 14, verse 27 says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. When you know that God is fighting the battle, you don't always have to fight for yourself. You don't have to defend yourself as we talked about two weeks ago. You don't have to always look out for yourself. Watch your back. Because the Lord is the one who's making sure everything is in control. And this peace is the context in the midst of hardship. It's like in Psalm chapter 4, verse 8, David said, In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, will keep me safe. 
He said this in the midst of a trying time when he was in the midst of a battle, he could go to sleep. And if you were in the middle of a war zone, wouldn't you have a hard time sleeping? Like you'd be concerned that someone would ambush you or sabotage you or something. But this is the peace that God gives because he's the one who watches over us. And so if we think about what peace looks like, right, many of us are not peaceful. You're stressed out, busy, concerned, worried. But Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Why are you so worried? Why are you so concerned? If God really is in control, you don't have to be worried about usurping the control or making sure that things are going the way that you expect them to go. Finally, we have worship. It says in verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So finally, this is what he says. He says, listen, if you've been given that new heart, you're letting the word of God dwell in you richly, and it's teaching you things. Like the songs that we sing, if you're writing a song and you want to write a worship song, make sure the lyrics are meaningful because we're supposed to be teaching each other within the song to be edifying each other within the songs. It's not just songs that we like. We like the, the way that it sounds and the sense and, and whatever, but they should be meaningful so that as you're having the worship experience, you're learning new things about God and you're reminding yourself of his goodness. And we have plenty of lyrics in, in the book of Psalms to use as lyrics if you don't even know how to write lyrics. So just write songs, but let those things flow naturally just as we naturally will worship things and give uh, praise to things that we think are awesome, we should naturally, because we are falling more and more in love with Jesus, we are giving him the glory. And that's what it means by verse 17. Whatever you do, word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Just as you prayed in Jesus' name that his will would be done, that everything you do is under his lordship. Everything you do is under his authority. D.L. Moody was talking to this one guy who said, do I really, to be a Christian, do I really have to give up the entire world to follow Jesus? Because maybe that's what you're thinking. Like, man, they ask you to give up a lot of things to be a Christian here. Like, I don't know if I can do any of those things. Well, D.L. Moody said to this one man, he says, no, you don't really have to. He's like, if you have a good ringing testimony for Jesus and you start talking about him, the world will give you up pretty quickly. If you want to live a life that's giving glory to God, people automatically not want to hang out with you. The world doesn't want you. The people that are constantly praising the Lord and, and giving him the glory automatically will rob the glory of the things that other people are worshiping. And people are pursuing all different kinds of things. But we as Christians should tell them about the best thing in life, which is the God of the universe. So looking at this entire passage that we had today, looking at this life that we're living, what's holding you back from living that kind of virtuous life? Because once again, it might be like, oh, I don't really, I don't really know. I don't want to be a sold-out Christian, you know? But you're forgetting, once again, that as you put off certain things, you put on new things, you're living the best kind of life possible, the best kind of existence, because this is the life full of joy, a life full of meaning, a life that's oriented by God himself and directed by his spirit, a life that can give you peace in the worst of all circumstances. I told a friend of mine this past week that 
God's peace is not so weak that it needs perfect circumstances to work. Oftentimes when we look at our lives, we just kind of like, we're stressed out and like, yeah, like I have the peace of God within me, but like life is hard. It's like, you don't have the peace of God. Just admit it. Just cry out to the Lord. Like, we shouldn't have pseudo-Christianity. We're like, well, I have the joy of the Lord. And you're like, depressed. Just admit it. You don't have the joy of the Lord, and let's talk about it, and let's pray, Lord, would you give me your joy? You look at people like, yeah, I've, my heart's really hurting for the lost people. But you're not crying. You're not weeping. You're not looking at people and saying like, man, I want to see that person come to know Jesus. So let's pray for God to give us that new heart. If you've been praying, like, for the Vertical Identity Conference, and it's just, like, Thursdays, you got the reminder, okay, I'll pray for five minutes. You're, like, five minutes and done. Let's pray, Lord. I, okay, so I heard a, a teaching by one of my friends recently. He said this in a prayer. I loved it. Loved it so much. I want to use it. And maybe you want to use it, too. He prayed this. Lord, help me pray the prayers that you will always say yes to. Isn't that great? I want to pray those kinds of prayers. Lord, give me your desires. Teach me your will so that each thing that I ask of you, you will give to me. Help me to pray in your name that your will would be done, that I would have your peace, that I would have these attributes and not pseudo-attributes and pretend like, yeah, I got a new heart. But really, like, you're angry and you're bitter and you haven't forgiven anyone. So as we come here, the best way to stay here and not be reluctant to coming is to just admit, I am a sinner. I am not doing the things that I should be doing. Lord, would you forgive me? I need a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit tonight. I need your power. Because by doing that, God's like, all right. All I needed was a willing heart. If you have a hard heart, how's God going to work with that? But if you have a moldable heart, a heart that's soft before the Lord and says, Lord, I want to be used of you, then he can speak to you. He can use you. He can fill you afresh with his Holy Spirit. I love a... I just want to read this quote. It might kind of be out of nowhere, but I'm just going to read it, and I'll, I'll close with this. Because people say, like, oh, man, like, but the world is so pleasurable, and I just want to do those things, right? And that's why people don't want to follow the things of the Lord. But really, the life that God has for you is far better than the, world that, uh, the life that the world has for you. And here's an atheist philosopher, Julian Beginney, who, who admits this, actually. That's why I like this quote. So I'm going to read it for you. Here it goes. Atheists have to live with the knowledge that there is no salvation, no redemption, no second chances. Lives can go terribly wrong in ways that can never be put right. The reason to be an atheist is simply that there is no God, and we would prefer to live in full recognition of that, accepting the consequences even if it makes us less happy. Wow. Like, that's depressing. And so here the atheist philosopher is basically saying, like, the reason why we're atheists is not because we're more happy, because actually we might be less happy, but at least we know the truth, right? So, like, he's doubly deluded. Like, he's not even participating in the passing pleasures of sin because he recognizes that it ends in destruction. But we as believers, we get both life and that more abundantly, and we have the truth, which sets us free. Let's pray.